Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh Trainee and Members Committee. My name is Kat Ralston, I'm a member of the TNMC as well as a Medical Education Fellow and a Geriatric Medicine Registrar in Edinburgh. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr Sean Golden to discuss the important topic of sustainability in healthcare. Would you like to introduce yourself Shauna? Hi, thank you so much, Kat, and thank you for having me on the podcast, and thank you to the college for allowing us to highlight this important topic. My name is Shauna Golden. I am this year's first medical education fellow in sustainability in NHS Lothian. I'm an emergency medicine doctor by background. I studied and trained in Ireland before completing a global health policy master's in Edinburgh. That then led me to undertaking this job in the NHS. Thanks so much. It's really great to have you on the show today. So I think most of us agree that being more sustainable in healthcare is really important, but it can also feel very difficult. And sometimes when people are talking about sustainability, they can give off the impression that they are sort of faultless individuals who always wash their yogurt pots. And it feels like if we can't reach this goal, we might as well not try. And I think it might be helpful to be explicit about the fact that we aren't perfect and that might be okay. And in the spirit of this, I thought it might be useful to start with being open about how we are failing as well as succeeding. What do you think about that? Yeah, Kat, I really love that. I think the level of perfectionism that people set the bar on in sustainability can be a real barrier. And one of the things I've tried to bring into the role this year is moving away from that idea of having to be 100% in order to engage with the problem. Certainly, we don't expect ourselves to always be in perfect health in order to be doctors. And the analogy I really like is on the Guilty Feminist podcast, which is headed up by Deborah Francis White. They always start with sentences that are like, I'm a feminist, but... And they talk about things like, you know, how much they love their Barbie dolls or how much they spend on hair. So to kind of bring in that human aspect to us and to kind of drop this entry criteria. So my one is, I'm an environmentalist, but my grandparents live in Ireland, so I'm occasionally on a flight, more than I would like to admit. And if it's okay to build on that a little bit, I want to talk about how this barrier really can stop us taking action. So we think often about this kind of idea that if we were to undertake something sustainable in work, that we have to either be uh, Greta Thunberg or uh, David Attenborough in order to do anything meaningful and I think that can be really disabling in terms of trying to enact agents of change amongst the people we work with. So what we need to bear in mind is that it isn't binary, it isn't do or don't, planet saved or planet lost. 
every 0.1 degrees of warming that we prevent, that we stop, confer you the survivability benefit. For every 0.1 degrees of warming, 170 million people are displaced in relate to climate crisis. So we're looking after our 0.1 degrees that we can avert, that we can prevent. And we just need to move away from this idea that if we're not doing stuff 100% perfectly all the time, that we're somehow then a hypocrite or a failure. Certainly not what we bring into healthcare. Every day we go in and we do our best with what we can. And we need to just bring that analogy across to the environmental fight. The second barrier that people have isn't just perfectionism, but it's also this weird knowledge barrier as well, that we have to be an expert in order to act. So we have to fully understand carbon counting, or we have to fully understand the different scopes of emissions. I think a lot of that pressure comes from our type A personalities and also our training that if we don't fully understand 100%, we can't act on it. But as hopefully we'll talk to today, a lot of the actions that are taking don't need to be in expertise. And in fact, if we take our lessons from public health models, getting the whole population shifted a little bit is much more impactful than having a couple of experts or a couple of perfectionists. Yeah, it's so important, I think, just to try and remove that barrier of having to be seen to be perfect, to be able to be making a difference. And I'll join you in that by saying, like, I'm really interested in sustainability, but I've put stuff in orange clinical waste bins when there hasn't been a convenient black bin nearby, even though I know that it costs much more money and uses much more carbon to burn that waste. So we can't all be perfect 100% of the time. And I'm going to pick up a bit on some of the things you've said. So I think the first thing that I'm interested in is that thought about that cognitive dissonance, I guess, between having to either do everything individual that's perfect or it's such a big problem that actually what I do doesn't matter. And you talked a bit about sphere of influence as well. Can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So when we're trying to think of solutions towards the climate crisis, Where we focus our attention is where we focus our energy. So I'm an emergency medicine doctor and as such, I'm pretty solution focused. I'm not really interested in admiring the problem. So as we start to focus our solutions, we need to think of where we can make a significant difference. Often the coverage of the climate crisis focuses our attention on the macro view. So this global view, so COP26, the UN, Davos, floods in Pakistan, our use of coal in India, all these things have one thing in common in that they're completely outside the scope of influence that you or I have in our day to day. And the problem is when we take in this whole scale problem, we become consumed by the whole and it instills a lot of inertia with us because the problem seems insurmountable. The other way we can do is that we can make the problem too small. So the idea of a personal green footprint was funded and peddled and has been disseminated by BP Oil. So this idea of looking after your own footprint or this individual focus on action. This idea of what can I do as one person or how can I be really green? And The problem with this way of thinking is twofold. One, 
it again goes against that public health curve. It pushes us towards this idea of getting to 100% in one individual versus shifting the entire population by 1%. And luckily, after COVID, we all actually understand what flattening the curve and shifting the 1% means now. But that focus on the individual is actually very ineffective. The second problem with this individual focus is that it contributes significantly to eco-anxiety and guilt. So, you know, you can't reach this heroic status, this heroic criteria, this one individual that can save the planet. So you stress about your yoga pot, you stress about your car, and you're consumed by this guilt that isn't very effective, but is also a negative contribution to your own mental health. The problem with the individual, the heroic view, is that it's not true when we look at anything extraordinary that's happened. Often there's daily a lot of criticism of the NHS, but if we were to look across the water, the idea of a free public health system that can save lives is a heroic thing. And it is not made up of individual heroes. It's made up of normal people who believe that things should look a bit differently, who believe that this is how things should be. So we need to move away from this individual green footprint or this individual hero, because it's not true. It's a waste of energy. If we move to the other end of the spectrum and take the problem as a macro view, so look at it globally, all the actions that need to happen to avert four degrees of warming. The problem with this view, when we look at COP26 or the inaction in other countries, is that it's also not true. It's not binary. It's not do or don't. It's a spectrum of survivability. If we look at the whole picture, we become overwhelmed by the size of the problem. We have to come back to every 0.1 degrees of warming that we avert, that we prevent, confers a survivability benefit. And that is what we need to look at within our sphere of influence. So what can we do to shift the dial? We're lucky within this our sphere of influence within the NHS, we have a great power to act. The NHS is 5% of the UK's carbon emissions. We use up a lot of stuff. We're the ninth biggest employees in the world. We're not going to get caught up on who the other ones are. We're the ninth biggest employees in the world. We have a huge influence and we use up a lot of stuff. So by making systems change, depending on which part of the NHS we work in, we can shift the dial quite radically. The key thing about a sphere of influence, so moving beyond that individual into a place that we can enact change, is that it inherently has other people in it. So we have to go against this. Well, I'm just doing this thing for me and this is just what I do. And we have to recognise that our sphere of influence requires us to bring other people with us to have a bit of awkwardness, that inherent awkwardness of change, and to come to a shared value. We have to move away from that individual view, but also that lonely, guilt-ridden view. And we have to move away from perfectionism. The whole team getting 2% better is going to have a much greater impact. Just like the NHS, by coming together and saying, this is how we do it. We're the kind of team that do this. We're the kind of department that do this. But it's a we, so you can't do your sphere of influence without bumping into a few other people. 
Yeah, that's so important. And I guess a bit freeing to think about it as your sphere of influence, because sometimes if it's so big, thinking about that corporation thing, then actually people can feel very disengaged because what does it matter what I do? So thinking about it as the we and your sphere of influence within the NHS, I think is a really useful way to think about it. So should we dial back a little bit? So I'm also interested in what got you started in this journey about sustainability. You're in a role that's new in NHS Lothian. Can you tell us a bit about what started you off on this journey and what your roles involved this year? Yeah, thanks, Kat. So, yeah, if we go back a bit, on qualifying for medicine in 2017, I uh, completed my internship in Ireland and then went out to Australia where I worked for two and a half years. I've always had an interest in humanitarian medicine and global health inequalities. And it was during my time in Australia where we had devastating wildfires and droughts, but also flooding in the nearby Pacific Islands that were all significantly related to climate, but also disproportionately affected those that were already the most hit in society, that were already on such a socioeconomic disadvantage. So I think that was what initially started me connecting the two. This idea of health inequality, we're in the business of health, we're there because we want people to be healthy. Humanitarian medicine, doing a lot of these rescue missions for now climate-related disasters, confirmed climate-related disasters, and the environment being this both necessity, you know, for being healthy, but also now something that's proving to be quite a threat to the health of our populations. At the time, my former resident of Ireland had released a book and a series of podcasts. She had gone on to work in the UN as the head of their human rights branch. And she had done a series of podcasts on climate crisis, a man-made problem and feminist solutions, which we can link to in the chat. And she kind of started me sparking on this idea of being solution-oriented. And then I was particularly influenced by the work of Hugh Montgomery, who headed up the Lancet Commission on Climate Change and is a professor working out of UCL. And he gave a series of preliminary talks in London and Dublin. And I just remember the first time watching it, just not being able to sleep. I think that's probably why I am so aware of people's reluctance to look at the problem as a whole because I think with somebody particularly in the field of health breaks it down for you it's hard to then look away it's hard to believe there's anything more important and weirdly it's gotten easier to engage with since then so I had a couple of supportive mentors in the network of women in emergency medicine so they encouraged me to do talks and research and I got involved with Doctors for the Environment Australia who are a group of doctors who lobby government on clean air policy which again was really interesting because focusing on this idea of the things that we need for health we largely don't have control over which you know we all know on some level from our undergrad medical degree but when you think about the correlation between worsening lung diseases and different countries just having dirty air so in Australia, their car legislation laws are much lighter than they are in the UK or Europe. And as a result, they're having higher increases of respiratory illnesses just because the air is dirtier and there's nothing that an individual action can do to control those. So that led to me undertaking a global health policy master's in the University of Edinburgh. I think it was largely to try and make sense of the problem a bit more. 
And then through that, I applied for this job in NHS. So the, the job this year is new. So it sits in under the medical education directors, the NHS management group. And my job this year was largely to define what the post could look like, largely to realise what could be done if people were given time and support to lead sustainability initiatives within the NHS. And I think what I brought to this role is more of a macro understanding of the public health and the kind of issues at play with getting more sustainable NHS. I have gone back to kind of the basics of just being solution focused. So finding ways to kind of bring projects and puzzles through the fray of both uh, policy management and just day-to-day healthcare. And it's been a really exciting adventure and I definitely will be sorry to hand it over, but that's the end of it. Thanks for sharing your story, Shauna. And I think it's so good that actually this is becoming more of a priority, particularly for medical education as well. So it's good to hear that these rules are getting made and that you've had a good experience. So you touched a little bit on the environmental impact of the NHS when we were talking about the sphere of influence at the start. I wonder if we want to talk a little bit more about that and linking in with that, what actions are happening at the minute in the NHS to respond to the climate crisis? Yeah, so like you said, the NHS, as everyone listening to your podcast knows, is a huge beast. This year within NHS Scotland, we have set up a national pathway to net zero by 2040. This pathway is headed up by Jason Leach, along with sustainability boards across the region. The pathway to net zero focuses on three dimensions of care, which is green theatres, acetic gases and inhalers. I think it's important for people listening to know that we do measure and target our carbon emissions across the NHS. I feel like I wouldn't have done that if I was working on the words day in, day out. And there are people who are doing this. So we measure our emissions in terms of scope one, scope two and scope three emissions. And scope three emissions are largely driven by goods. So this isn't the gases and stuff that we have direct control over, but it's actually the things we buy, how we use them and how we get rid of them. And we carbon count all of that. So we think of Everything we do within the NHS requires energy. Every good we use, every item we use requires energy both to get to us, to use it and to get rid of it. And this energy is what drives up carbon emissions. So that's kind of your like basic 101, what we have to agree about how we understand the NHS emissions. Scope 3 makes up over half of our emissions. So it's not our electricity, it's not our heating of the buildings. And it's not, I'll say gas, they're going to be the biggest money. It's going to be what we buy, how we use it, and how we get rid of it. And this is driven by clinical demand. So 80% of our carbon emissions is driven by clinical activity. So it's not going to be fixed just by solar panels. In terms of how we're approaching solutions in the NHS, we work a lot with what the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare model have developed down south. And this idea of a shift away from high activity and low value activities within the NHS. So we all know that we show up to work every day, wanting to do the best and provide good value for patients. But many things within the NHS either don't contribute in value to patients' care or patients' outcome and drive up a lot of resources. And these resources aren't just finite resources like plastic, water, land use, energy. They're also resources that are funded in a different way. So finance and the money that can be spent elsewhere, but also staff's energy and time. We know that doing work that feels meaningless and high volumes of work that does not feel like it's adding value and time waste contributes significantly to burnout. So it's really important that when we're looking at 
sustainable solutions, much like when we look at realistic medicine, we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. We're all playing on the same team. It's about getting the waste out of the system and conserving all resources. In terms of what that might look like, one, reinvigorating preventive care within the NHS and directing of funding towards that. That's not sexy or exciting, but it is something that's been significantly hit by COVID and it is something that is highly important that we bring back both for public health but for conserving resources that they're redirected towards preventative care to better bang for our book in terms of carbon and current staff in terms of finance. Second one is redirecting towards primary care. Redirecting resources towards primary care so that they're enabled to take on more of the care. It's a much lower carbon area of our healthcare system. Then, for the care that we are providing within the hospital centres, which is going to be a huge part of our footprint, we start to think about things like is this activity adding value? Are these your PCT scans adding value? Are these your people at tests adding value? Is this appointment adding value? And if it's not, then it's a wasteful activity and we need to get rid of it or find a better use of it. If it's an activity that needs to happen, because lots of the activity in the NHS needs to happen, I think sometimes it gets a bit crosswired and you're like, no, most of what we do is very important work. Is there a way to lean it up? So we talk about lean systems. And again, these systems are about removing waste in terms of staff's time and energy, finance, and the items we use. So within the different programs in the NHS, it's about removing wasteful activity and then removing waste within an activity are the two big focuses. And I think that links back to the title of the podcast, which it might be worth explaining at this point, being lazy to save the planet. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, totally. And again, I think hopefully this is something that NHS workers can relate to. I think being positive within a crisis is not making light of a crisis. I don't think it'd be very beneficial if you and I sat here for 30 minutes and talked about the terrible problem of the planet. We're aware of the struggles, we're aware of the crisis, so I think it's important. I don't think it's wrong to remain lighthearted about serious things that we find ourselves in sometimes. The laziness is just a way of putting it to people what the ask is. It's to do less, basically. I think people hear about sustainability and they think back to your analogy of the orange bins where it's like, oh, I, oh it's another cognitive burden on staff that we're already you know, trying hard to motivate, trying hard to retain. And it's like, you know, try and find ways that for things that aren't adding value in a really chimes with the realistic medicine things. You know, do you really need them to come back for bloods every two weeks or is that just the protocol? Do you really need to MRI that 100-year-old? You know, I'm just encouraging people to let that type A person just have a chill for a second and bring out your inner Snoopy and just don't do it if you can. And I think that is going to be the most impactful thing that you can do within your work is try and look at systems that aren't adding value and are eating up your time and see your time as a finite resource and get rid of them. Because I think, Again, it's about where we're directing our limited energy and focusing on recycling is one part of the puzzle is if you look at the waste hierarchy. So like I talked about, I'm just going to pause on this because I know it's something that people think about a lot. If we look at the waste hierarchy, so if we think of the energy required to extract something, use it, get it to us and for us to dispose of it, recycling is just one step above throwing it in the bin. 
So it's not that I'm saying you're recycling, you should or shouldn't do it. I'm just saying redirect your energy to something further. If we can reduce the activity that needs the product in the first place, if we can reduce some of the products, that will be much more impactful than the recycling bit at the end, which has quite a high cognitive load. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that link, obviously, as a geriatrician to realistic medicine. So kind of thinking along the lines as well, I'm just thinking about, you know, does every patient coming into majors in A&E need a cannula? Things like that. I think are things that as individuals, really, you can think about as being sustainable, but also being better for patients in terms of reducing infections and pain and distress and things, as well as money. So lots of benefits beyond the climate as well, which is something that can get other people interested in terms of the financial side of it. So we've touched a little bit about this, but I guess what advice or key actions would you give someone who was interested in making healthcare more sustainable? Thinking about the listeners we have, what can they do? So I think I might take a step and just touch on some of the projects I've helped with this year, because I think that might help some of the guidance of it. So Judith Montgomery is one of the physiotherapists working out as a Royal Children's Hospital. And she came to me because she said, look, you know, we do 500 splints here a year, the Western do 500, and we have all this plastic and we have all this waste. Is there a way that we can make it better? We've seen that they have compostable wood casts in a place down in England. I think it's Chelsea Westminster's Trust. And she's like, you know, how can we get this over the line? And what we did was we used the Climate Challenge Grant, which is funded by NHS Lothian, that gives £5,000 for any ideas or projects that support climate change. We measured the baseline waste and we did a project switch to procurement, which like surveying patients and staff for acceptability and usability. And that's just a really cool project because it was found to have high levels of staff acceptability, high levels of patient acceptability, no compromise on patient care outcomes. But the plastic prints that would have been quite energy consuming to make, ship, get rid of, are now compostable from these in the bins. On your cannula point, so there is several what we call considered cannula campaigns happening around NHS Lothian. And there's a really inspiring quality improvement project that happened in Charing Cross, where basically they did a baseline study of how many cannulas were put in their ED over one year and how many were used and what they were used for, that type of thing. And they've reduced their cannula cannulations by 20% or the equivalent of 40 cannulas per day. This was through things like changing their policies, doing traffic light systems for cannula indications, most disciplinary education. So nothing new in terms of quality improvement, but it had a significant cost saving and overall impact saving in terms of, again, as you say, like staff time, patient well-being, finance of the products, and then we can carbon footprint that. So there's a couple of campaigns of that going on at the moment in the NHS, but the results from Charing Cross are really inspiring. So all of the projects this year start with someone who's in work that goes, oh, I think we can do this better. They look for the system for either waste within an activity or a wasteful activity. And they then have gone to find out, are they doing it somewhere else? So they scan the system voice and they've gone, well, what do other people do? Um, we're looking now at the stage where there's quite a large repertoire of quality improvement studies up on the Centre for Sustainable Healthcare's website. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. And in particular, there's nearly all medical specialty guidance have their own green pathways now, which is the green nephrology, there's green leaf programs, green jerrys, green ortho, green theatres. So 
you know, it's going to be about getting waste out of the system. So it's going to be stuff that you already recognize. It's not going to be something that you didn't see before. But it's about recognizing that there's that added advantage from a sustainability environmental point of view of removing it and getting tips on how someone else mapped it out. So the other two projects, again, Eric Arivi and Lorraine Murray in the Breast Theatre Unit were looking up as part of the Green Theatres Programme at how to make their breast theatre more sustainable. So they said, look, you know, we generate a lot of waste, clinical waste, at the high cost, and it's incinerated, high carbon. What could we do that could be reusable? And then they looked at NHS 5 for our neighbours, and they have reusable theatre hats. So reusable equipment in theatres wins across the board environmentally. Whether it is carbon, plastic, water use, it still wins across the board. And there's no, they're equivocal in IPC. Some studies have shown they might even be better. So they came to, again, the Climate Challenge Grant to start the project going. We measured the cost comparison. We measured safety. We got all the hats for the staff and we surveyed them and what they thought afterwards. And what was really cool to find out about this is, again, it's this idea of this win-win. So staff loved the named hats. They loved knowing who everyone was. They found it contributed very positively in three critical instances so that they went in with these new fabric hats with the name and title on them and they could identify who the consultant this was and not, you know, give the bougie to the relative. Uh, so they had a couple of anecdotes there of that impact. And my job with it is to measure the impact, support the implementation, but we're now looking to copy it across other sites. So again, nothing groundbreaking. The last one I've been involved in is the green space development in ITU in the Royal Infirmary. So Horatio's Gardens are these amazing program of work that have happened in England, Wales, in the spinal units for development of green space for spinal patients rehab. And the ITU nursing staff had requested a similar access to green space, in particular for their long-stay ITU patients. They felt it contributed to well-being and they described being able to bring patients out into the limited work they had as being grounding for the patients and their carers. So this programme of work had kind of sat in the shelf and now they had some Irish person who had a lot of free time on their hands and was like, you know, you should give them the garden. So we've uh, worked with the NHS working charity facilities. We've teamed up with Stroke and OT. And it looks like we're going to be breaking ground on a ITU garden for long-stay patients and for meaningful activities. It'll continue to the biodiversity in the Royal by August. I think the reason I always like mentioning that one is I bring this back to that idea of nature isn't something that we're losing out from by embracing. And I think people have a better idea of that off the back of COVID, that idea that we need nature and we're getting a lot more resources now that show access to green space could save NHS England over a billion a year. Access to green space for patients reduces needs for analgesia, reduces needs for bed sake. But sometimes there's so much data and so little common sense. We know we need nature. We didn't need someone to do that research study. We know we need it for our health and our patients need it. We know they shouldn't be under strip lights for 12 months. So I think I like bringing the story in as the IT staff weren't interested in it from a biodiversity perspective. They're interested in it for their patients. And that's really what gives me hope and what inspires me in the job is these people who, again, just go into work under the pump and are like, oh, 
we could do something a bit better. And I think often sustainability and that go hand in hand. Love that idea of the win-win as well as a way to get people on side. So like, this is good for patients, this is good for staff, this is good for the climate is a really effective way of getting everyone on board. And also, I guess that advice about how individuals can think about how to make things more sustainable. So that kind of looking at your own area, like where's the waste happening here? And then looking for the bright spots. So what's happening where things are going well and how can I copy that? And I think in a lot of quality improvement, there's loads of reinventing the wheel. So really useful to know that there is a website that has all of these projects on it that people can get inspiration from. And we'll put a link to that in the podcast notes so people can access it. So I think just to play devil's advocate a little bit, the NHS feels like it's in crisis a lot of the time, doesn't it? We've got increasing patient numbers, increasing complexity of patients, less staff. We've just been through COVID. And I'm just thinking of the people who are going to be saying, well, how can I take action? How can I have the cognitive space to even think about taking action to the climate when I'm getting pulled in so many other directions? Yeah, I think we acknowledge that people do amazing work and go above and beyond in the NHS every day. I think often we have so much data now on burnout and we know that engagement with your work or finding meaning in your work is a key preventive factor for burnout among staff and all of these projects that were brought to me were brought by staff who are under the pump and that's not to say that everyone else should be doing above and beyond that's not what I'm saying I think the best way to think about it is this idea of a planetary health lens so sorry there's going to be my masters coming through now a lens we can think of like a pair of glasses that we look through to make sense of the world. So we wear lenses in healthcare all the time. We think of a patient-centered lens. We think of a clinical lens, an evidence-based medicine lens. We also think of a safety lens. Sometimes we have to think of a legal lens. You know, there's a lot of lenses that we look through now that are so ingrained in us that we don't realize they're part of our glasses. When we have to develop a new lens, or a new way of understanding the world, similar to what we're doing now with realistic medicine, similar to what we're trying to do with equity, diversity, and inclusion in medicine. There's this discomfort with the initial work required to think about things a little bit differently. But once the lens comes in, then we don't really realize we're wearing them. So we need a planetary health lens when we look at everything we do We need to recognize things that are finite. So it's about when you're ordering tests, do we need these tests? Because X, Y, Z is a finite resource. Is it going to change anything? Because it's not infinite. We have to move away from this idea that the world was infinite and was there to serve us. We know they're finite now. And once we get through that discomfort of this new lens, we just bring it everywhere. When we look at our quality improvement projects, well, you know, could this quality improvement project actually be about sustainability? We look at our teaching. Well, you know, air pollution and the man-made nature of that and the fact that people from or background are most likely to live in areas of highest air pollution. How do we bring those lenses into our teaching? So it's not an additive, it's not an extra step, but it certainly requires just that bit of work of how we bring that lens into play. Yeah, I really like that. I guess thinking about bringing it into everyday work as well. So if you're doing a quality improvement project about something, could you have a sustainability lens to that as well? 
So, Shana, sometimes when we think about planetary health and sustainability, it can feel totally overwhelming and sometimes a bit depressing even. So I'm interested to know what gives you hope when thinking about sustainability in healthcare. Working within the NHS, I work with a lot of amazing people who come in every day and believe that this is how things should be or that things should be even better. These people are inherently solution-orientated. And to power up my president again, I'm not interested in problems. I'm interested in solutions or I'm interested in what will make the boat go faster. I think focusing on that and focusing on the movement rather than admiring the problem gives me a lot of hope. The projects and the energy I've gotten from the people who have undertaken projects on top of a lot of their clinical work really, really inspires me. And the fact that there's a broader map piece of where we're heading within the NHS is also keeping me going. When we talk about the radical change that's needed for something like the Green Theatres programme or Green Inhalers, which will involve all of our respiratory doctors, think, they talk about this idea of top-down or bottom-up approaches. But when we think about trees, trees don't grow from the top-down, they only grow from the bottom-up. So are people listening? The energy that is needed to save ourselves and that is needed to date to keep our energy going has always come from the ground up and this will be no different. I'm Irish, so I'm going to end with one last Lynn quote, which is by Margaret Mead. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. Thanks so much, Shauna. So thought-provoking. I hope we've given our listeners both an idea of the fact that sustainability in healthcare is really important, but it is also achievable and within our sphere of influence and given some practical tips on how we can try and make healthcare more sustainable where we're working. Thanks so much for listening and hope to see you next time. Thank you.